Hello, and welcome to this bonus episode of The Stuff of Dreams. This is actually an episode recorded a few months ago for my friend and former therapist Ben's podcast, which is called Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. But I'm cross-posting it here for those of you who would like to hear more about my journey to depth psychology and how it has affected my life and my career as a doctor. Plus, there are some cute stories about my patients, so enjoy. Depth Psychology a philosophy which asserts that an unconscious exists, that archetypes are real, that myths can have measurable and lasting effects on our everyday lives. Yet, how could studying a 3,000-year-old Greek myth possibly address the issue of, say, mitigating modern-day physician burnout? And how might taking into account the unconscious needs and fears of small children in a medical setting assist with diagnosis and overall care? Today, we speak with Dr. Amy Lawson, who will tell us how going back to school for her PhD in Jungian and archetypal studies helped her reconnect with medicine even while navigating the broken healthcare system. In addition, Dr. Lawson will discuss her own personal transformation from a doctor who always followed the rules and thought largely in black and white to a physician who has learned the advantages of improvising in the moment as well as detecting the unspoken needs of her patients. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. So today I am here with Dr. Amy Lawson. So I'm a pediatrician. I used to work in the hospital. Now I do mostly urgent care. And how do we know each other? Well, I had an early midlife crisis. I found myself in need of a therapist. Yeah. And somehow you were the one that popped into my life. You poor thing. I know, because you know what you said the first time you met me. And what did I say? I believe it was something to the effect of, Amy, you put on a good show. <laughs> and I was like, am I going to go back to this guy? Because do I need this right now? <laughs> and what was I referring to? I think in Jungian terms, you would say I was all persona back then, and I didn't go a lot deeper than that. And what kind of persona was it? Mm, I don't know. What do you think, Ben? It was kind of this quiet, stiff, nerdy. You got the feeling that you, you know you would stay home with your husband and play D&D &D all day long. Well, not D&D, &D, but uh, we don't go out clubbing, that's for sure. Yeah. Then our therapy took a particular direction. What direction was that? I think that probably at first when I presented as like a doctor and somebody who wanted to be super scholarly, that Jungian interpretations and dreams were probably not something that came to the forefront of what you thought about for me at first. I don't know. But mm -hmm. then we got into what some of the problems really were, which a lot of it I think for me was kind of a loss of meaning. And that plays right up Jungian alleys. So you started me reading the books of Robert Johnson and we started talking about my dreams and I was hooked. You did an extraordinary thing a few years ago. What did you do? I did. So how many years did I train to be a doctor? Um, a lot. It takes 12, 13 years to be a doctor, right? And then with my midlife crisis, I just felt like I was too one-sided. I had grown up with logic and reason and science. That's why you thought I was nerdy because I met my husband at a science fair, right? Yeah, that probably didn't help. I actually don't even remember. You don't know that story? Oh, yep. No. I won the Missouri State Science Fair and he won the Nebraska State Science Fair and we met at the National Science Fair in Boston. Oh my God. When we were in high school and we kept in touch. So anyway, now we've been married for 20 years. So I was talking about being a doctor and growing up with science and logic and reason as well as fundamentalist Christianity. And my life was only lived in black and whites. Everything was what's right and what's wrong and logic and reason. And so I think I was really, really hungry for the gray areas, intuition, 
things that didn't have to be exactly right or wrong. And I think that's what drew me into depth psychology and Jung when you got me into it. And mm-hmm. so I asked you what school you went to <laughs> and I looked it up and I decided I probably needed to go too. And so I signed up to do a PhD in how pretentious is this Jungian and archetypal studies at Pacifica Graduate Institute. That's not pretentious at all. <laughs> Pacifica Graduate Institute is a fine institution. It definitely is. And I got a master's in counseling psychology, which has, of course, an emphasis in those sorts of things because they are they have the Joseph Campbell Library. They're really into the Spiritus Mundi, the health of the world and all that stuff. Uh, heck, they have my father's book on bird. Animal an- guides. Animal yeah, guides. We just used it for my, yeah. my la- one of my last classes. About animal symbolism, archetypal animal symbolism. The interesting thing about that is I really started school thinking that I was going to quit being a physician and find a new career path because I was so done. And instead, what studying Jung and depth psychology did for me is it brought me closer to like the real parts of medicine, the reasons I got into it in the first place. Can you say more about that? When you function in medicine for so long, and it's such a broken system, we all know that, it's really hard to connect with the deeper, meaningful levels of it. It's so easy to get stuck in the everyday minutia of filling out the right electronic medical record pages and figuring out if insurance is going to pay or not. And, you know, it's not really about connection with the patients anymore sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I thought I was on my way out. But instead, I feel like I kind of have more bandwidth now and I can see things a little more deeply. So when things do go well with my patients, I get a lot more out of it. What we're going to be talking about today specifically with Dr. Lawson, we're going to be talking about how she acts as a bridge between the medical world and the spiritual world. Yeah, the doctor part of my brain is like, oh, that sounds touchy-feely woo-woo, but it's totally true. Right. When you first came to see me, you were really, you had a background in religion, but your religious background was so hardcore fundamentalist Christian stuff that everything was in black and white, which from an archetypal perspective works really, really well as a doctor because when you're in medicine, well, the bone's either broken or it's not. One of the things that Seymour, my old therapist, told me is that clarity is the complementary opposite of precision. And that as you get more and more precise, you lose clarity. And as you get clear and sort of back up and look at the big picture, you lose precision. Precision is really, really necessary for medicine. (laughs) You've got to be precise or the person will die. But there is an element of medicine where the clarity piece needs to thrive. I hear what you're saying about precision and clarity being so important in medicine, and that's absolutely the take that I had on it. You know, let's learn all the rules. Let's follow all the algorithms. I want my teachers to just tell me if I'm doing this right or not. And it made me a really good intern and a really good resident, and it makes me really good at following the rules for resuscitating babies and stuff like that. But as with anything, you can get too one-sided, and there's a lot of medicine that I think you miss when you're only looking at the black and white. Because what I found as I started with you and then thinking about things in a much less black and white way was that a lot of parts of medicine were just making me chafe. I was like, okay, I may know a study that says, you know, 95% of people are helped by this medication, but I want the ability to decide whether my patient is in the 95% or the 5%. And medicine tries to take me away from that. You know, insurance companies, if you're not doing the most common treatments, a lot of times they will withhold payment. There needs to be room for the personal in medicine too. And I think that our Western cultural outlook 
doesn't leave room for that. The analogy that always comes to my mind is like, we treat our bodies like we treat our cars. So the body is a car, it's a machine. You go to the doctor, just like you go to the mechanic, find the part that's messed up, replace it, get the machine fixed again. And you know, every car is pretty much the same. You, you should be able to do all that. And we shouldn't be treating people like cars. Sometimes what's right for, you know, 95% of patients isn't right for my particular patient. And I want the ability to discuss that with them and make a plan with them that doesn't involve my administration or insurance or lawyers. Can you give me an example? So there's certain kinds of lacerations in certain areas of the body where you're not supposed to glue. You're supposed to do stitches. And, you know, the people that make these rules are, you know, dermatologists or people who think that they, you know, know what works most of the time. Glue meaning like crazy glue. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, there's actually like tissue glue that is mm -hmm. that you can use to repair things. And when I have a six-year-old in my room that is deathly afraid of needles, even more than most kids. I want the ability to glue that child. I don't want to have to tell the mom, you know, the rule is that I, we have to stitch. But it takes a lot longer to have that conversation, talk about cosmetic results and whatever. And so a lot of people just won't do that. But I want the ability to look at my own patient and decide. So you went and got a PhD in Jungian archetypal psychology. At one point in our therapy, it's like, this person knows more than I do about <laughs> the subject. Amy, what exactly do we mean when we say depth psychology? And why is that so antithetical to everything you've been taught as a medical person? Well, usually when I tell people that I'm doing depth psychology, they think I said death psychology. And so first we have to, you know, say that, no, no, that's not it. That's so funny because um, they're such, they're in that mindset, you know? Yeah. Depth? Depth? What? That's got to be death. She said death. I'm sure she said death. She's a doctor after all. But really, the most fundamental truth about depth psychology is that the unconscious exists. Okay. And what is the unconscious? We have our whole psyche or our whole self, and mm -hmm. only the tip of the iceberg is conscious. So there's the conscious and then there's the unconscious. Your consciousness is made up of, we call it your ego consciousness, or all the stuff that you use on a daily basis, the parts of your personality that are okay with you, the stuff that, you know, that you I want to succeed. Do. I want to yeah. date that person. I want to yeah. make money. I want to... I want to make a podcast and get famous. Exactly. Right. And then there's the unconscious, which is the repository for parts of yourself that for whatever reason haven't been integrated into your consciousness. They weren't okay for some reason. Your parents socialized them out of you or your religion or your culture put them in the unconscious. Okay. Can you give us an example of something that might be in somebody's unconscious? For so many people out there who are, you know, people pleasers, it's not okay to set boundaries. And so that ability to set boundaries and protect yourself at any cost has been repressed into the unconscious. But we believe that what happens when stuff's in the unconscious that really wants to be heard, the more energy you're spending having to repress it and keep it down there, mm -hmm. the more energy you're feeding it with, and it's going to spring up in some way. People will talk about clergymen who are supposed to be these loving, benevolent people that help the sick and everything. And often they are not great to their families because all that stuff has to come out somewhere. If they're repressing all of these, what they consider unsavory parts of their personality, everything's going to come back up somehow. Robert Johnson, the Jungian philosopher, would talk about how he would honor the shadow before giving a talk by like going backstage and, and screaming into a pillow or breaking something. Like Because the, his idea was that for every good event or every everything that was happening, there had to be a kind of a a shadow aspect would emerge in some kind of funny way. Yeah. Uh, either something would go wrong, be some kind of electrical problem, somebody would get sick. It could be anything. So one of the direct applications of that idea 
it reduces my anxiety because when I see the shadow rolling through, I kind of go, okay, here we are. Here we are in this darkness. That's necessary. That's supposed to happen. And the problem with black and white thinking or the, I'd say the Christian fundamentalist perspective, or even the medical model perspective, is that there's no room for the idea that something dark is okay. Exactly. We were talking about how definitely the angry or hating part of me has been in my shadow a lot. And so I find that when I repress that too much, it really comes out all of a sudden as like a burst of fury and swearing. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's usually to some authority figure, actually. But because I didn't have the ability to set really good boundaries, I was supposed to be the good girl and do what oh, was expected of me. And when that happens too much, even at, like at work, when I have several needy patients in a row and I'm getting behind and everybody's telling me what I'm supposed to be doing and that I'm supposed to be seeing these people every 15 minutes. Eventually I have to like get angry and acknowledge that I'm feeling angry and overwhelmed and like calm down and then then it's okay. Then but well. but if I just try to repress all those feelings that doesn't go well and then I'm just resenting all my patients. And My other conception of the unconscious, uh, Jung kind of used the term self as a, as kind of loosely. Sometimes he'd use it to talk about the self, the unconscious is the self. The point is, is that I use Use the term self to discuss the part of us that that is sort of genuine and real mm. i think a good example would be like martin luther king's i have a dream speech or especially his letter from birmingham jail you can you read it it's extraordinary you can tell it's from someplace really deep and pure like when a piece of art comes out that's just like wow that's really something um it's from the self I think like in movies a lot of times when you see the hero who's been beaten down suddenly gets his or her collective shit together and does the thing. It's like the self. It's the unconscious. It's the it's the thing that's deeper than the ego. Whatever they want to call that is coming out and going bam and, and doing its thing and releasing all of its power. Seymour said to me that one of his best kept secrets was that the power of our unconscious is very difficult to measure. That we don't we we really don't have any conception of just how much we keep in there and how much potential we all have. And so to see a doctor tap into that. Because the thing about medicine is that it's all ego. I don't mean in a prideful sense. I mean the sense that it's- Except it's... for surgeons. For surgeons, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have to make one surgeon joke if we're talking about, okay. Uh, the point is, is that it's all about what can be measured and what is and what we can see, and that's great. Um, but the problem is, is that when you, in, the, in the universe of measurement, the, the, there's a frame thing that happens where the scientists and the measurers think that, oh, look how awesome we are. We've measured all this stuff. We're cool. But what the piece that they're missing is, is well, your, your, what you've measured is merely a measurement of what you can measure. <laughs> and you are only a little bit, a little bit in there. And the rest of it is, is creativity and mystery and intuition and guesswork, frankly. And you are going to cut yourself off from that if all you focus on is what you can freaking measure. And mm -hmm. I just love the fact that as a doctor, you got into what cannot be measured. Is that an accurate way of talking about it? Am I saying anything? Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. Absolutely. It's, yeah, you can't measure the unconscious. We can never know everything that's in our unconscious. We believe that it's a healthy thing to do to integrate more and more parts of the unconscious into your conscious as you grow and mature as you can, but you're still only hitting the tip of it. When you walk into a room, you see a patient and you have an intuitive hit on what's wrong with that patient. There's nothing is being measured, at least not consciously. Yes, our Western mechanistic culture is all about measurement and science ever since the age of reason and like, you know, and control. 
And the other thing that we always try to do is we try to take the observer out of it, right? It doesn't matter who's measuring things. It doesn't matter which lab or which lab setup is measuring things. You sh everything should be repeatable. And, you know, like in quantum physics, we know that's not really true anymore. But it just shows how deep that goes in our culture that you only want things that can measure and the observer who's doing the measuring isn't part of the equation at all. And that's just not true. I'm the observer, but I'm also the doctor and I'm the person interacting with them. And you Absolutely. can't take me out of the equation. Right. And I'm glad that I don't have to try anymore. How is it that you don't have to try anymore? I used to think that I should maintain that super professional going by the book, following all the rules. And for some patients and families, that is what they want. They right. don't want a doctor that acknowledges the gray areas. For a lot of my families, it builds rapport with them when I see them for who they are and not as just another patient coming in the room. And I think that is really what the voice in my head is telling me not to toot my own horn again. But I think that's why patients like me and come back to see me. Sometimes they're tired of people who just treat them as a car on the assembly line that needs to be fixed. You asked me why you don't have to try anymore. Mm -hmm. And I mean that I'm not trying to be apart from the situation. I have fully embraced the fact that I am a participant in this with them. I'm not just some like external rule machine that, you know, can dispense the advice to it. Which really goes back to like Greek mythology and Asclepius and what my dissertation will be about. But yeah. You want to talk about that? <laughs> is this a good segue? It um, is a good segue. I want to say one thing first. Yeah, sure, sure. When you say, I don't want to toot my own horn again, mm -hmm. for those of you listening at home, <laughs> this is an excellent therapeutic moment when uh, my former client, Amy Lawson, has a little voice in her head, probably her mom, saying, now, dear, we don't toot our own horn because that's not godly. And... Let me tell you something, Doc. If there's anyone I've met in my life who has more than qualified herself to toot her own goddamn horn, it is you. You're a doctor. You went back to school. You're getting another PhD. You had to completely change your mental frame about how you viewed your profession and your life. That's a very uncommon thing. And uh, you have earned your horn toot. Okay? So please do it. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> it means a lot coming from you. That's an example of a piece of her unconscious that needs to be integrated into her conscious mind. Because I love to toot my own horn. <laughs> I mean, you, I'll, not you, Ben. I'll do it on a I'll I'll do it on a whistle. You can give me a, a stovepipe, and I'll toot I'll toot that. I'll toot anything I can get my hands on. But tell us about your dissertation. So, if you had told me when I started at Pacifica that I was going to write a dissertation about anything to do with medicine, I would have laughed because I was done with medicine and looking for my next career. Mm -hmm. Going to Pacifica was the first major thing I've ever done in my life without knowing what the end point would be. My whole life has been planned about what hoops do I jump through so that people will think I'm doing a good job, say I'm successful, you know, went through high school, got straight A's, did well in college, went to med school, trained well, got a good job. You know, all of this is like the path is set for me, right? And I always knew what the end point was. I had no idea what the end point was going to be when I went to Pacifica, but it just felt like what I was supposed to do. And I didn't usually listen to that before. So, so anyway, I still have another voice in my head that doesn't like talking about what I'm going to write my dissertation about because it doesn't sound very doctorly in a way or something, or it sounds like, I think I hear my dad saying it sounds like soft science or something, you know. 
But <laughs> one of the most meaningful perspectives of depth psychology is that we like to look at things with symbol and metaphor and archetype. And one really easy way to do that is through mythology. Because in mythology, all the archetypes were really obvious, right? All the different gods were all the different archetypes, and they all interacted with each other in different ways and had different attributes. And this is how the Greeks saw themselves and the dynamics of their lives. So my dissertation is going to address a lot of the problems in medicine, but particularly the problem of physician burnout by looking at it through a mythologic lens. How so? Tell us more. Yeah. Everybody knows that physician burnout is a really big problem. The numbers are usually from 40 to 50% of physicians are reporting that they're burned out at any time, depending on their specialty. And people are starting to pay attention and administrations are starting to pay attention. But most of the ways they're trying to fight that is with institutional things and systems-based things. Let's make the computers easier to use. Let's get people to do the billing or scribe for you so you don't have to do that so much. But nobody's addressing it from a personal perspective. What does it feel like to be a doctor? working in this broken system, just wanting to like help people and taking care of our patients and having to navigate all these hurdles all the time. I think that looking at our plight through symbol and metaphor can be a good way to do that for some people, especially because it kind of automatically balances all the science and reason and logic that we deal with usually and brings in some of the arts to what we're doing. Now, for example, how we can learn from mythology. My favorite one right now is Psyche and Eros and Psyche's fourth labor. So Eros was a god and Psyche was a human. This is a Greek myth. This is a Greek myth. Psyche was very beautiful and Eros's mother, Aphrodite, didn't like that because people were starting to notice Psyche more than her and she was a goddess. Goddess of what? Goddess of love and beauty. And Eros is the goddess of? Uh, Eros is the son of her, so he's kind of the god of love, the one that had all the arrows and stuff, kind okay. of a Cupid figure. Okay. So Aphrodite wanted to punish Psyche, and so she sent her son to pierce her with an arrow to make her fall in love with someone totally unsuitable. But instead, he accidentally pricked himself and fell in love with her himself. So... He kidnapped her to get her away from his mom. And, you know, anyway, his only rule was he didn't want her to know that he was a god. So he said she could never have the light on. He would only come to her at night. But she got curious. And long story short, you know, she shone a light on him. He got mad. He threw her out of the garden and abandoned her. And now she's alone. So she's trying to figure out how she's going to get back to him. And she goes to Aphrodite, his mama, who says, sure, I'll give you these four tasks. And if you can complete them, then I will reunite you with my son. But Aphrodite sets the tasks to be impossible. But Psyche gets a lot of help along the way. And, you know, it all it all ends pretty well. But that was all a way to talk about Psyche's fourth labor, which is Aphrodite sends Psyche down into the underworld and says, you have to go to Persephone, queen of the underworld, and get a cask of beauty ointment for me and bring it back to the surface. And she means for her to get stuck down there forever. But some wise person tells Psyche how to be able to return and says, you can't talk while you're there. You have to take two cakes in each hand to feed Cerberus, the guard dog. You have to take two coins in your mouth to give the ferryman one on the way in and one on the way back. You have to not stop or talk to anybody or help people. 
so that you can accomplish your own task and you can't feast with Persephone. You just have to take a little bread and water and then come back. And Psyche mostly does that. I mean, as soon as I read that myth, I started thinking about doctors because what lesson do we need to learn most of all that sometimes we have to take care of ourselves and not just other people. We have to learn how to say no. We have to avoid helping every single person we see on the way so that we can keep ourselves psychologically healthy. But all the pressures that we're under, administration and insurance people, they know that we'll always just see one more patient because we can't stand for our patients to go without being seen and we'll always go the extra mile. Some people are are, are refusing to call physician burnout burnout anymore and they're calling it moral injury because it's really a byproduct of doctors functioning in this messed up system where we can't really do what it is we set out to be a doctor to do. So what I really want to do is find some stories like that and write about them from a medical perspective. I want to develop some workshops and things that could maybe help give doctors a piece of what I've gotten with my depth psychology lens of seeing the little parts of our day where we really reconnect with our meaning and purpose among all the other shit we have to do. One story that I use a lot with my patients that reminds me of this one that you just told is the uh, story of Ulysses when he's on his boat and they have to pass by the sirens. Mm. This is Homer's story, Ulysses. The deal is, is that when ships pass these sirens uh, that are on these rocks, these women that are singing, that the sound is so beautiful that the men will jump from their ships and drown trying to reach them. And what I tell my patients is that that is also a metaphor for anything that pulls you off course, so much so that you lose you lose track of yourself. And so what Ulysses does is he has himself strapped to the mast of the boat, which is like the the center, right? The self, the, the, the driving thing. And he can hear, but all of his boatmen have wax in their ears and they don't listen to him. They just keep rowing. And I think that's sort of symbolic of, I think sometimes our feeling function can drag us off course because you hear this beautiful singing or you hear something negative that accesses our feeling function and our feeling function takes over and says, I want that, or I've got to stop that, or I've got to do that because that person's in need or that person is beautiful or that per- whatever it is. And I'm going to go do that and I'm just destroy myself instead of staying the course. And I feel like the boatmen are kind of the thinking function, just like we're going to just keep doing the thing. Like I use mythology directly in my work with my patients. I'm like, look, here's the story about Ulysses. And this is what I think it means. When you were talking about that image of of Ulysses tied to the mast and his ears are open and everybody else has wax in their ears. I was really resonating with that. Like, I don't remember you ever using that with me in therapy, but all of a sudden I was like, yes, that is how I feel sometimes now because sometimes ignorance is bliss and I wish I could go back to where I just didn't notice all this stuff all the time sometimes, you know, because while I talk about, you know, all these sweet things that happen with my patients in the exam rooms and connecting with them, sometimes it makes things way too intense and it was easier when I could disconnect a little bit. Can you talk about that? I will never forget the night that made me think that most of all. And I was like, why am I going to school? This would have been much easier if I didn't have this perspective. I was helping to cover the neonatal ICU. And there was a baby who had been born with a health problem that was not compatible with life. He was going to die. It was a a certain kind of heart problem that it's not correctable. And so he had been on all the IVs and central lines and on the ventilator for several days. His family knew in their heads that he was going to die, but every family hopes that their child is the miracle and the exception. It often takes them a long time to let go or to not be able to feel like they're giving up on their baby. 
Even though he was getting sicker, his family had gone home for the night. We thought in a bit of denial, probably, or something. And he started coding. We started CPR. And we're, I mean, CPR on a baby is brutal. Like, you're squeezing their chest, like, like so that it goes in an inch or two. One of the nurses has her hands around the baby's chest, and she's pushing down on his sternum to try to make his heart pump. And he's already on the ventilator, so we're, you know, pumping air in and out of his lungs and we're giving medications to try to get his heart started again and we're trying to keep him alive until his parents come basically but they live like 40 minutes away and the neonatologist looked at me at one point and said Amy what am I missing what else can we do it was like three in the morning and I guess I didn't have filters and I just looked at her and said my heart isn't in this like he's there's nothing else we can or should do because all I could see is that he was suffering. Like we were torturing him. He was suffering. And it was in the name of something good, you know, trying to make his family feel like he didn't die until they got there. But we were torturing him. And the part about the night that still makes me tear up when I think about it is, you know, we knew that the parents were going to come in the room and then what was going to happen and how long was it going to take to talk to them before they would let us stop doing this. And the dad just kind of stood in the corner, not really sure what to do. And the mom walked right up to the side of the bed, put her hand on the arm of the nurse who was forcefully squeezing her baby's chest Mm -hmm. and said, you can stop that. He doesn't need that anymore. Oh, wow. And it was like the mom saw the reality of that in three seconds, but we couldn't have convinced them of that before they were able to see it, you know? And that's such a hard part about medicine is that we sometimes know more than the families, you know, what the outcomes are going to be, but you still have to respect their wishes. We were coding that baby for the benefit of his parents, but we were torturing him. So the ethics of that, you know, who should, who, who is, who, who is our ethical duty to? In that moment, I felt like mine was to the baby, but most of the team was functioning as that it was to the family because they were the ones that were going to be surviving. That situation would have been a whole lot easier if I didn't think more deeply about these things because we just would have been following all the rules and you don't call the code till the family gets there. Right. So your awareness of all the layers around what's going on. There's a story you told me that stopped me in my tracks. Um, It was about the baby that was born without lungs, I think. Do you remember that? I have had the privilege to meet four different premature infants who were born before they had lungs. And so they were only alive for a few minutes to a few hours. Dealing with that is really difficult for a lot of doctors because we're in the mindset of we have to heal, we have to fix things, and it's not in our code to just let babies die. Like, that feels really bad. It feels like we're failing. But it's not failing when the babies are too young and don't even have lungs yet, you know? So I remember seeing these 16-week, 18-week, 20-week infants seeing how fully human they were. The one I'm thinking about is this mother was just devastated, of course, that she went into premature labor and we couldn't stop it and she delivered her baby. At how many weeks? This one was about 20 weeks. So the baby was less than a pound, very tiny, but had a head and... About as big as what? Um, Like a tennis ball. 
and then we always ask the parents if they want to hold them. And she said, yeah, I want to do skin to skin, which is, you know, what a lot of healthy babies do too. That's good for bonding and keeps babies warm and everything. And some moms want to do that with babies they know are going to die and some don't. But this woman put her baby skin to skin. And when I first went in around midnight when this happened, you know, she was devastated. She was crying and in grief, obviously. And then my job was to go in every hour or two through the night to listen to the heartbeat so that we could say when the baby had died. And a lot of times that takes some hours. And for this baby, it did. But the second time I went in, the mom was just kind of looking at the baby and, and I listened. And, it was on her chest. Uh, it was on her chest. And I asked what her name was. And the baby's name was Evangeline. The mom said, she peed on me. I can't believe it. She even, she peed on me. And it was like, it was like a mother moment that any infant could do. It really took this baby, you know, I think it was 6 or 7 a.m. in the morning before I didn't hear a heartbeat anymore. But the transition in that mom from midnight to morning was remarkable because she had spent a night with her very completely human child mm -hmm. and had a relationship and had felt her heartbeat and got peed on and talked to her and just experienced her and she was at peace in the morning as much as you can be wow. and that's just a really beautiful thing that a lot of people don't get to notice and so I still remember the names of the four babies that I've pronounced dead over the years and they each taught me something a little different mm -hmm. how you doing I'm doing good those are pretty intense tales I mean it it is but it feels like honoring them every time I remember those babies. It feels like a privilege that I was one of the very few humans that got to meet them. It feels like I'm giving them respect and meaning to their stories. So yeah. that feels good. Can you tell the honey story? So I'm privileged to be at the births of a lot of babies. Going to C-sections is never people's favorite things because you stand around in a cold OR and wait for the baby to be born. And so this one particular time, the dad came over and told us that when the baby was born, he had brought some honey to put on the baby's tongue. Mm -hmm. And here is where medicine interferes with any meaningful human stuff, because honey can have botulism and infants aren't <laughs> supposed to have honey till they're age one. Right. Fair. So the nurses are all <laughs> freaking out and like, no, you can't do that. And they're treating him like he wants to harm his baby purposely. Right. Wow. And I was like, well, what? tell me about that. Why? What's important about putting honey on the baby's tongue? And he said, oh, well, we believe in our culture that if the first thing you taste is something sweet, then you'll have a sweet disposition. <laughs> Annie leaned over to me and said, but I don't think it worked with her older sister, <laughs> which was also funny. So but funny. because I was like, I want to find out what this is culturally. And I was like, we have some sugar water that we can give the baby that we often use for low blood sugar. That's something sweet. Is that okay? And he was like, absolutely. And so we gave the baby sugar water so that her first taste of life was sweet. That's a good story. You went from being a hospitalist to working with children. Can you tell us a few stories about your work with children? I've learned so much about different jewelry that children wear now in different cultures just because I like to ask. And along the lines of asking more questions, I've noticed that, you know, when you start off in medicine, you're just supposed to ask ask all the right history questions, right? Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to stay on task and find out what are the symptoms and how long do the exam so you can diagnose and treat. But that's not the most interesting thing to me anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's important, obviously, but if I have more time, 
I want to find out more. And I find that a lot of parents are really uncomfortable with that, especially, you know, in the kids who are like three, four, five years old, they want to tell me things. They want mm -hmm. to tell me a story or there's something really important that they need me to know. And the parent is trying to get them back on track or cut them off so that they not waste my time. And these are the parts of my day that I like the most. Actually, I always be sure that those kids like to get, get to tell me the story. There was one little boy. He was like, okay, you said I have a cold, but am I going to be better by Friday? And I was like, I think you'll probably be better by Friday. Why? What's Friday? He said, I have a big presentation. Now, he was about eight years old, so I wanted to know, what is your presentation about? He said, oh, it's about how I'm a deep thinker. <laughs> and I was like, really? Tell me more about that. What do you like to think deeply about? And his mom's like, you know, rolling her eyes over in the corner, right? But I'm, I'm in by now. And he said, I like to think deeply about mythology mostly. That was the perfect thing to say for me because I was in my mythology class for Pacifica right then. And I was like, do you know what? I'm going to school and I'm learning all about mythology right now. And he said, well, I've been wondering where I was going to go to college, but now I know where do you go to school? And we had this conversation about mythology and it was lovely. And it was the part of my day that I remembered most. It really made him, I think, feel like seen and heard in a way that parents, sometimes they just want to like, yeah. you know, not waste my time or whatever. But this is what I love. And so I actually did a little bit of work around that. Like, why is this so important to me? Is it just that I'm bored by medicine and lazy and I I just want to like play with kids all day. So in another of my classes called Psyche and the Sacred, we did a lot of work with what we personally find numinous. And the word numinous means what we find really powerful, emotional, awe-inspiring. It can be either terrifying or elating, but things that make a really strong emotional impact on you. We did this classwork where we were supposed to notice when we were having those kind of feelings. And I noticed that it was when I was able to really witness a child and hear these stories that they were telling me. It was like, well, why? Why is that numinous to me? Really, when you follow that back to whatever your particular psychology is, I mean, for me, it's because I don't feel like I totally got that when I was a child. But I never would have put it that way and I never would have put those two things together. But what I realized that my depth psychology background has done now is that when I treat patients that way, when I treat my kids that I'm seeing that way, I'm kind of treating the kid me as well. And I'm giving them what I didn't quite get, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. What didn't you get as a child? Um... I think I learned at a really early age that I was supposed to follow the rules and that I was supposed to take care of other people's emotions and that it wasn't okay or totally safe to have my own. Can you give me an example of a childhood memory? Yeah, I mean, it was never okay to be angry in my household. Whenever I think the word hate, I still hear my mom's voice in my head saying, we don't hate. And so, you know, there were certain emotions that were off limits. Mm -hmm. But I think that my mother had such a such a positively one-sided relationship with her mother that me being her firstborn, if things didn't go right, then she felt like it was her fault as a mother. And so I think even as a small child, I realized that I needed to take care of her emotions and keep her happy because that was really important for her. And with my particular psychological makeup, that was just really easy. And then add to it the fundamentalist Christianity where there's rules and, you know, everything you do is wrong. And, you know, yeah. What else do you hear from little children? 
that's the thing about kids. It's not usually that they tell me anything earth shattering. Uh What really makes me respond to them is their earnestness and like how important they think it is for me to know what they did with their stuffed animal that day (laughs) or how they helped their brother yesterday or you know it's just that's what i really respond to i think that in our world of social media and you never really know what's real and what's fake and whatever Mm -hmm. i find that the intense realness and earnestness of children i just find it so restful and fascinating and good for my soul (laughs) and and don't you think with a depth psychological lens your conception of what a doctor means archetypally to a young child must be pretty powerful and pretty potent and you must understand how important it is for a child to be listened to by someone of your stature yeah i think it's really important that they get listened to and i think it's really important that we treat their bodies with respect and Mm -hmm. that i teach them about what i'm looking for in their body and i had one patient who had a pneumonia and his mom was like can you tell him like what that actually looks like and i was like what do you mean and he said because i like to imagine it and she said yeah when he's sick or not feeling well he likes to imagine what's happening in uh-huh. his body so that he can visualize what he wants to happen oh, that's cool. so we talked about how pneumonia was kind of mucus and goo and germs in mm-hmm. his lungs mm-hmm. and that it was taking up the space where the air needed to be how the antibiotics he was going to take and all the water he was going to drink and everything was going to help his body wow. heal heal itself i think that as doctors we are taught to ascribe everything to logic and reason. And so we always would talk about, even in training, like that the right people to teach medical students aren't the attending physicians who've been a doctor for 40 years because they can't break it down step by step, right? Mm -hmm. They just have like a gestalt view of things. The right people to train are, you know, the people who are a year or two in front of you. But the problem with that is when we say that, the way most doctors explain it is, well, yeah, the doctor who's been a doctor for 20, 30 years, they just have really good pattern recognition. You know, they can just walk in a room and sense what what the case is. And I really think that that's missing some of the richness of it. I really think that being a good doctor often is about intuition as well. But that's like a dirty word, right? Would you want your doctor to say, well, I just have this intuition that mm-hmm. what's wrong with you is, you know, most people wouldn't like that anyway. Yeah. But I've started to realize that that's part of what's at play too. I can walk in a room and within five seconds, I can tell whether the kid is really sick or not. I've heard that, that there's a certain look that a sick person has. Yeah. And it's not a look that you can describe. It's that within five seconds, you're taking in where is the child in the room? Are they moving or not? Are they on the their parent or are they happy on the exam table? Are they running around the room? Are Mm -hmm. they laying down or sitting up? What do their eyes look like? Do they look at me or are they totally asleep? Like you can get so much information. I would say that most kids that I see, I probably don't really need to examine them. Of course, if they have an ear infection or something, then I need to. But a lot of times it's really, you can tell so much in those first few seconds, but you know, intuition is a bad word. How can you tell if a child is healthy? I mean, you have to listen to the story too, but if I walk in and the parent has told my nurse that, you know, their kids had a fever for five days and they're not eating at all and they're dehydrated. And then I walk in the room and the child is jumping up and down on the scale and pushing all the <laughs> buttons on the blood pressure machine. Right. I'm like, mm, yeah, I, I'm not concerned about this at all, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so sometimes it's, it's like that. That's cool. So learning this whole thing really developed your intuition. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Well, I think part of it was just learning to pay attention to it. You know, I used to 
want to kind of plan what I was going to say almost before I walked in the room mm -hmm. or I would at least think about my top five differential diagnosis and like what I thought it would be. Right. But sometimes I get in a room and that's not what I thought. I've noticed the last couple of years stuff coming out of my mouth that I actually didn't plan to say, but I'm saying it and it feels real and it's true. And quite often that's with teenage girls, <laughs> poor teenage girls, they have it rough. I had one last month who was just having feelings of faintness. She'd never actually fainted, but she was having these feelings of faintness and dizziness. And then it's like, well, when is that happening? Well, it's a lot of times when I'm in a movie theater. Well, what is it about the movie theaters? Well, I had a friend who was at that movie theater in Colorado when the shooter was there and mm -hmm. whatever, but they hadn't really put that together so much. And so we talked some more about that. And I found myself talking about the mind-body connection, which I don't usually do because it's often not very popular, mm -hmm. but because I had already listened to her so closely and listened to all the complaints and kind of developed a rapport because I had also asked her about her mental health and, you know, well, do you feel really nervous about things? Are you worried about being in a school shooting? She'd be like, no, I'm not. I'm not worried. I'm a pretty chill person. I'm not mm -hmm. super anxious. So then we had to talk about, but if your mind isn't letting you pay attention to that anxiety, then sometimes it comes out in your body mm -hmm. and it can come out as a panic attack or as hands and feet feeling numb or as your heart beating fast or feeling dizzy. Uh -huh. And so sometimes we have to listen to our bodies for clues about what our brains feel that we're repressing. Sure. I don't go into the whole conscious unconscious thing with my patients, but right. that's what it all is. Did that ring a bell with her? Surprisingly, she and her mother were both nodding and the mom was like, you know, I think I've had some stuff happen kind of like that too. Yeah. And so I guess I was psychologizing the mom too, but, yeah. but yeah, that's how I have realized that all of this union stuff has really taken over my psyche when it comes up when I wasn't planning to say that kind of stuff. <laughs> Can you tell us about Asclepius? So I'll tell you a thing. So my dad gave me a book that I don't think he ever actually read on Asclepius, which who is, I guess, the original doctor. And then Amy saw that on my office. Oh, can I read that? And I, of course, hadn't read it because I have my father's disease and I don't read the shit that I actually have. And so Amy, of course, went home and devoured it. And, and wrote a paper on it. And wrote a paper. What did you learn? Who is Asclepius? What's the deal? <laughs> so Asclepius was the god of healing. In Greek times, there were Asclepian temples, and that is where you would go to worship Asclepius, bring offerings, and go to get healing. Is that also where the symbol of the two snakes, the caduceus staff, comes Yes, because snakes were really important. So for everyone, the, the caduceus staff is the, the symbol that you see on like the American Medical Association, that weird sort of squiggly thing with the two lines in the middle. That's actually a staff with two snakes wound around it, which was the original medical symbol from ancient Greeks, mm -hmm. was it not? Yep. Okay. And yeah, snakes were important. I'll, I'll talk snakes about are good. That. We like yeah. snakes. So in ancient Greece, when you had exhausted the healing capabilities of whatever local healer you had, uh -huh. you made a pilgrimage to an Asclepian temple. And these places were not just temples. They were like spas. There was healthful food. There was arts. There was dance and music. There was drama. There's still an active outdoor amphitheater at Epidaurus, which was one of the major Asclepian temples that's still used to this day. There was massage and it was the original um, nationalized healthcare. You could stay as long as you wanted. They didn't charge you. It was taken care of by all the priests. 
And basically, you stayed there until you felt ready to spend a night in the temple to get your dream cure. And they called that incubation. Because the way Asclepius would heal you is you would spend the night in his temple, which sometimes there were snakes in the temple. Sometimes they were below the temple in a labyrinth. But snakes, they're chthonic, which means they're underground. They have a relationship to the earth. They bring the power from the earth. So snakes were one of his representative animals. And you would spend a night in the temple and would receive some kind of dream cure. Sometimes it was an actual cure of your physical symptoms. Sometimes it was a dream about what you were supposed to do. Sometimes you were magically healed when you woke up. Sometimes you needed to talk to the priest to help you interpret it. But that's how you achieved healing. And this worked for a lot of people because there are records left by people of how many things were healed. And I mean, again, if you take yourself from the hustle and bustle of regular life and spend some time in a spa and then go really interior and get a dream cure, like, yeah, I think you can cure a lot of things with that. So the original doctors, at least in our culture, were dream interpreters, essentially, were people that were psychologists in a way. The priests that helped with dreams were called therapeutes, which is where we get therapeutic and therapy from. Oh, I had no idea. That's so cool. So the reason I like that story a lot is there was some responsibility on the patient side as well. And that probably makes me sound like some lazy doctor that wants my patients to do all the work. And that's not what I mean. Right. But it's the exact opposite of bringing your car into the mechanic for healing, right? Uh -huh. It's putting some responsibility on the patient, too, that you have to make a pilgrimage. You have to take care of yourself. You have to have this open and receptive mindset. And the priest healers, the original doctors, were people who connected the sick with the healing powers of Asclepius. They weren't the ones that claimed the credit. They were conduits between Asclepian healing and their patients. But how healthy of a mindset is that where you're a partner with your patients. You know, it, if I'm a doctor and I'm not taking credit for doing all the healing, I'm just being a conduit between medical knowledge that I have and the patient. Right. That, number one, gives patients a lot more autonomy to choose what's right for them because I do think that patients have the right to ignore what we say when it's not right for them. And number two, it takes some of the pressure off of me when patients don't get better because they don't follow my recommendations. It's not my fault. I provided them the information. They decided it wasn't right for them. Right. That's okay. So when I don't get myself mixed up with that actual energy of that power of healing maybe it's a hit for my ego but it also makes it easier to let go fascinating you know jung talked about the crucible that the two you put the patient and the therapist in the thing and you kind of mix their trade their soul energy and you get a third element and that's the healing and sometimes that works and sometimes it's a shit show <laughs> but i think we've kind of exhausted that topic you want to talk about some larger ideas about what's going on in the world right now well, so when you were talking about a therapist and a patient or a doctor and a patient being in the room, and I was thinking about how, you know, you do have two consciousnesses talking to each other, but you also have unconsciousnesses talking to each other. And that's why sometimes things are a shit show, right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes there's clashes that you don't even really realize. And so, of course, what's going on right now in the crazy world is this pandemic, which is affecting how I do medicine in a lot of ways, because I'm not seeing patients in person anymore, almost at all. I'm a pediatrician. And so kids aren't getting sick with the COVID virus and anxiety levels are such that no parent wants to bring their child into a medical facility where they might be exposed unless the child is very sick. I mean, it's a learning curve and I've been having a lot of difficulty with that in some encounters because I'm missing that sense of being in the room with this kid and family and gathering that intuitive unconscious information. 
And I find myself being so much more careful, relying on the rules a little more again and being more conservative and erring on the side of caution because I don't have that in the room presence. I think in a lot of ways, like I do think that medicine needed to be forced to innovate because there are a lot of things that we can do very well with video visits, but it also takes something away from the doctor-patient connection. And I don't know, it's just, it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. Yeah. I prefer the phone when I'm talking to my patients because I feel like there's something so flattening about Zoom and seeing someone's face on a screen. And there's something more mysterious and kind of like we're in a dark room together when I'm on the phone. And I think it's just the sound quality is higher. I don't know. They just feel closer to me somehow. That makes sense for you because you already have an established relationship with them. I'm cold calling people that I oh, haven't yeah, yeah, seen yeah. before. I'm just talking about my experience. Yeah, no, as a and, and but it's all related, right? And yeah. so I'm finding that, you know, usually I don't even have to think about it. I just have a rapport once I've spent five minutes in the room with a family and a patient and have played with the kid and have right. eager body language. And I haven't had to deal with people not believing me or taking me seriously in a really long time. Yeah. And sometimes I get that on the phone or in a video visit. It feels really bad. And then I have to go back to this, okay, you're just a conduit. This isn't all you, you know. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the doctor psyche changes with this too. Yeah. So you know about virtue signaling? You've heard of this? Remind me. Virtue signaling is when someone talks about how diverse, how they honor diversity or they honor like queer visibility or whatever the pop thing that they've got going on. What I've noticed in this pandemic is that people are, are hanging their neurotic tendencies on this disease. If you're super, super rigid about stuff, you can be as rigid as you want and more power to you. If you are fuck the man and this is all a pandemic, well, you can do that too. If you are really introverted like me and just, I can just stay in my house. I can completely isolate. Well, you can go on with your bad self. You know, you can bring whatever insanity you want. And I include myself in that. But one of the insanities, and this is all about the unconscious, right? This is this ego thing that our culture has, is we like to virtue signal. We like to let everyone know that we are the awesome one, especially in California. But the point is, the term social distancing is perfectly formulated for this virtue signaling culture. It is trendy to stay safe. And I think that no one is better in the planet than San Franciscans at being trendy. For those of you listening at home, Amy is, in fact, smiling and laughing, but we're doing it very quietly. Oh, I am. Sorry. I okay. was trying to let you tell your no, story. No, no, please laugh. Because people got to know there's a laugh track. Not, <laughs> don't even put a laugh track in, Amy. This is deep stuff, Sorry. deep, funny stuff, tragically funny stuff. You know, I was in I was in the panhandle with a, with someone the other day, and, and I was walking next to this guy, and we were walking along, and this woman drives by in a bicycle with a mask on. She goes, Ahem. I'm not really sure why she was ahemming us. I mean, it was a bike path and a footpath in the panhandle. We were walking by, so we weren't wearing masks. I wasn't, I really don't know. Maybe I wasn't six feet from him, but she really got her rocks off <laughs> by going past us on her bicycle and going, <clears throat> like you could you could feel it. The, the righteousness was palpable. One of the reasons I feel that COVID is overblown intuitively is because I feel like it serves a righteous purpose and it serves, it's serving unconscious purposes the numbers tell me, Ben, you're wrong. This is a real crisis. But psychologically speaking, it's serving so many things for so many people that I kind of listen to the conspiracy people and I say, you know what? I don't believe you for the same reasons, but I kind of get where you're coming from. 
I think most people kind of have a sense of that the world or at least the country is going to hell around here, right? And this is something that it's really easy to project all your stuff onto because it's a thing. It's a pandemic. It's a virus. Yeah. There are people you walk by that might have it. Well, I'm glad I was able to get that off my chest because I was really <laughs> mad at that lady in the panhandle. She <laughs> pissed me off. Yeah, there's a homeless guy who I always walk by and pet his dogs. And I walked by and gave him some money, but I said, I wish I could pet your dogs. And he was like, why can't you? And I was like, oh, they're telling us not to pet each other's dogs and he was like pet the damn dogs <laughs> and then i was happy because that's what i wanted to do <laughs> that's funny that's a good story i'm gonna end on that story because that's a delicious wonderful story sounds good shout uh, out to jasper shout out to jasper jasper you you the man and your dogs are dogs and thank you so so much uh, we're gonna do another episode soon on dreams and dream interpretation yes i love dreams looking forward to it amy is gonna make her own podcast on dreams Amy is a super genius and she is going to pass me up in podcast fame, which won't take much. It'll be like five minutes. He'll be more famous. This is my goal, but we'll see. Oh, you'll get there. So doctor, doctor. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, poking at me for all those years. Poke, poke, poke. Telling me that all those years ago, you told me that I put on a good show because I think that's the kind of dynamic that we needed. I I knew I needed somebody who wouldn't wouldn't let me just play the good students. But, but the irony of it is that you have put on a good show. Like, this has been a really good show. Laugh into the mic so they know that you're <laughs> laughing. This has been a fantastic show, and I've enjoyed it. This podcast better get your most listens ever. I, it'll get at least seven. <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. All right, bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Pertinent information stemming from this podcast will appear in the program notes. Should you have any questions or would like to be a guest on my show, you may contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or go to my website at benjaminrusick.com. I encourage you to subscribe, share, and all the rest. Thanks again. And remember, whenever you find your plate is full, you can always push a few things off to the side or you can get a bigger plate.